Um, Today's reading is taken from the second book of Kings, chapter 22, verse 1, which is on page 393 of the Church Bibles. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother's name was Jedidah, daughter of Adaiah. She was from Bozkath. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent the secretary, Shaphan, son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, to the temple of the Lord. He said, go up to to Hilkiah the high priest and make him get ready the money that has been brought into the temple of the Lord, which the doorkeepers have collected from the people. Make them and trust it to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple, and make these men pay the workers who repair the temple of the Lord, the carpenters, the builders, and the masons. Also make them purchase timber and dress stone to repair the temple but they need not account for the money entrusted to them because they are honest in their dealings. Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He gave it to Shaphan who read it. Then Shaphan the secretary went to the king and reported to him, your officials have paid out the money that was in the temple of the Lord and have entrusted it to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Then Shaphan the secretary informed the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book, and Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbor son of Micaiah, Shaphan's secretary, and Asaiah the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us, because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written there concerning us. Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, Akbor, Shaphan, and Asaiah went to speak to the prophet Huldah, who was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, the son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. She lived in Jerusalem, in the new quarter She said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Tell the man who sent you to me, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods, and aroused my anger by all the idols that their hands have made. My anger will burn against this place and will not be quenched. Tell the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the words you heard. Because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I will gather you to your ancestors and you will be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I am going to bring on this place. So they took her answer back to the king. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. 
he read in their hearing all the words of the Book of the Covenant, which had been found in the Temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord, to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. During the coronation service yesterday, a Bible was presented to King Charles, and it was made especially for the occasion. That's been um, the case in every coronation since 1689. As it was written, we heard uh, the wonderful words, we present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. That's quite a striking phrase, really, isn't it? The most valuable thing that this world affords. A striking phrase for something we take for granted so easily. Now, King Charles's Bible would probably fetch a fortune at auction. Only three of them were made, and uh, they mark a historically significant event. But what makes that Bible valuable is not just limited to those three that were made. It's true of every single Bible that we possess as well. I wouldn't be surprised if some of us here have five, six, seven Bibles hidden on shelves around our houses. Do we recognize the vast wealth that we possess? In the year 2013, a man called James Howells was clearing out his house and he threw away his laptop. Along with um, the rest of his uh, household waste, it ended up buried in a landfill site in Newport, South Wales. It wasn't until a few months later that James realized what a terrible mistake he had made. On that hard drive were 7,500 Bitcoin. And no matter what schemes he came up with, they were lost, unrecoverable at the bottom of this tip. Counting his mistake in today's money, how much do you think he'd thrown away? £174 million. Let's not make the same mistake with the most valuable thing this world affords. Maybe someone will rediscover that hard drive one day. Maybe I should go on a trip with my boy Josiah to Newport and we can recreate Two Kings 22, a modern day retelling. But by the time the biblical Josiah had his coronation at the age of eight, the scriptures had already been lost for years. Judah lived under the threatening shadow of the mighty Assyrian Empire and under terrible kings, the worship of other gods had become the norm. The temple which should have been filled with the presence of the one true God, instead had been filled with idols. But as we just read, the new King Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He commanded that the temple should be repaired, reclaimed for the worship of God. The idols were cleared out and all the dusty corners were swept. We don't have any dusty corners, by the way. Um, and in that moment... In some hidden place, the most valuable thing this world affords was found. I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. We'll come back to 
this story uh, towards the end of this message. But what a moment, the rediscovery of the Bible. What a great thing it would be if under King Charles's reign, this country experienced the same thing. Over the next four weeks, my prayer is that we experience such a rediscovery of the Bible. We don't want gilded Bibles put on display in glass cabinets. We don't want dusty Bibles hidden on shelves or hidden at the bottom of rubbish tips. Our intention is to appreciate the supreme worth of this more and more. With that aim, we're going to be studying four characteristics over the four weeks. The Bible's authority, its clarity, its necessity, and its sufficiency. Today, we're talking about the Bible as our ultimate authority. When we use the word authority, we mean that which, that which has power to direct our heads, our hands, and our hearts, uh, how we think, love, and act. Our ultimate authority is that which directs us and influences us the most. The ultimate authority for some is science. They are directed most by evidence-based reason and logic. The ultimate authority for others is pragmatism. They are influenced most by what works in their experience, what has led to success in the past or made them the most money. And increasingly, postmodern individualists find their ultimate authority within themselves. They emphasize what is right for me. And that usually means whatever increases my enjoyment, reduces my pain, reduces my suffering, reduces my inconvenience. And of course, in times past and around the world, kings and queens have been first authority too. But the Bible claims that place of ultimate authority for itself. Just because we understand how authority works in our society that doesn't necessarily mean we should understand the Bible's authority in the same way. I'm going to be explaining what the Bible says about itself, so it should be the Bible's definition of authority uh, that, um, that matters, not ours. And whereas in our world every single authority seems to uh, exert power in order to control, to abuse, or to put people in a box, the authority of the Bible sets us free. Now that I've framed the issue somewhat, here's a sentence that's going to come up on the screen. It summarizes why and how the Bible claims to be our ultimate authority. All the words in the Bible are God's words. So rejecting any part of the Bible is to reject God. I've doubled up something on the slide there. Apologies for that. Um, let's start with the first half of that sentence. All the words in the Bible are God's words. This first point is going to be um, big picture from the whole Bible. I'm going to be quoting lots of different verses from various parts. Don't feel that you have to flick through every single one of them. And in the second half, we'll get back to two kings. All the words in the Bible are God's words. Many of us are already going to be on board with the Bible being our ultimate authority but it's very easy to be misguided. We might say the Bible is my ultimate authority, but we more honestly mean something like 
my beliefs about the Bible are my ultimate authority, or the evangelical theology that I conclude from the Bible is my ultimate authority. It's really very possible to use this teaching to reinforce our certainty that we are right. But that's actually the opposite of what this doctrine teaches us. The message is not that we are right. The message is that God is right. Some people would prefer to say that the Bible merely contains God's words. The Bible clearly doesn't claim any less than this. In the Old Testament, it's most obviously the case when a prophet introduces a saying with the words, thus says the Lord. Um, That phrase occurs hundreds of times, and some of us in the New Testament, we've got our red letter Bibles, which highlight the words of Jesus. Those letters in red are the words of God himself come to earth as a human being. However, we need to take it a step further. The Bible does not merely contain God's words. All the words in the Bible are God's words. Let's talk about just the Old Testament first. In the New Testament, we read that all of the Old Testament writings are God's words, not just the bits that start, thus says the Lord. You might be familiar with the famous verse from 2 Timothy chapter 3, 16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Um, all, all scripture referring firstly to the Old Testament. Older translations said all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that was a fine translation back in the day. But the way we use the word inspiration now kind of gives the wrong impression. It sounds like God was merely the Old Testament writer's muse, um, starting them off on the process, but leaving them free to improvise the rest on their own. God breathed is better. It's a metaphor that encourages us to think of God taking a deep breath and then speaking out the words of Scripture. Obviously, the words of the Old Testament were written down by humans. They did so with their own reason, their own personality. But God is the one who spoke those exact words and still speaks through them today. God's breath is another way of referring to the Holy Spirit. He is the author of Scripture. And this is wonderfully illustrated by Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 5, he quotes a command that was actually written down by Moses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. In Genesis, that wasn't introduced, thus says the Lord. It was a comment by the human narrator. But Jesus doesn't say, as Moses said. Jesus says, he who created them said. Jesus takes the words written by Moses and says, God said this. Was he mistaken? Of course not. Jesus had a correct understanding of the Bible. It was written down by people, but spoken by God. Um, On one occasion, after quoting a string of Old Testament verses, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
So far, we've seen that all the words of the Old Testament are God's words. But we can say the same of the New Testament as well. When Paul said, all scripture is God-breathed, he used a technical term that comes up 51 times elsewhere in the New Testament. And this word, scripture, never refers to anything outside of the Bible. No poems, no extra-biblical stories, nothing. It almost exclusively refers to the Old Testament, apart from two occasions. In both, the New Testament writers use this word to show that new chapters of Scripture were being written. Just as the Holy Spirit authored the Old Testament, he continued to speak through the New Testament apostles. So in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16, Peter reveals that he knows of the New Testament letters written by Paul. And as I read this verse, notice how he puts Paul's letters in the same category of Scripture. Here's the verse. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. This is comforting if you find parts of our evening series in Galatians hard to understand. But did you see how Peter puts Paul's letters in that same exclusive category, scripture? To paraphrase, he said people are twisting Paul's letters just like they do with the rest of scripture too. He's putting the New Testament letters on the same level as the Old Testament. This is the same in 1 Timothy 5, verse 18. There, Paul quotes from Luke's gospel, the worker deserves his wages. And again, he calls it scripture. The gospels are just as much God's words as the Old Testament. So, we can be in no doubt about what the Bible claims about itself. In the Old and New Testaments, all the words are God's words. This is the basis for the Bible being our ultimate authority. Someone might make the claim that this is a circular argument. We believe the Bible is God's word because it claims to be God's word. And we believe that claim because the Bible is God's word and so on to infinity in a circular way. But let me show you why the Bible's own claims about itself must be the key factor in the end. Um, do try and stick with me on this because it's an important point. Every argument for an ultimate authority must be circular to some extent. If your ultimate authority is science, that must be because the evidence has led you to that conclusion. If your ultimate authority is pragmatism, that must be because it works. And if your ultimate authority is within you, that must be because it feels right. This is because if that authority has to find proof from another external source, it is no longer the ultimate authority. That new external source becomes the ultimate authority instead. So don't get me wrong, there is plenty of external evidence that can support that the words of the Bible are God's words. There's historical evidence. I really recommend going to the uh, British Museum and doing a tour. You'll find it really strengthening to your faith to see a cup that might have been held by Nehemiah or 
read a decree written from King Cyrus that God's people can go home out of exile. There is pragmatic evidence as well. The Bible provides a lens that makes excellent sense of the world that we live in. It provides a pattern of life that does work. There's experiential evidence. It's helpful to consider the impact of the Bible in people's lives around the world for 2,000 years. It's helpful to uh, listen to the personal testimonies of other Christians that you know. And there are so many other types of evidence that can be appealed to. But in the end, we are only finally convinced of the Bible's claims when we read the Bible itself. It is self-attesting. It is its own best witness. I've already said that the Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, but as Jesus explains in some of his last words to his disciples through John chapters 14 to 16, the Holy Spirit has another role. He is our helper. He is our teacher. He is the one who comes alongside us. As we read the Bible, he opens our understanding to recognize the glory of the words written on the page and the Savior whom they reveal. When he's at work, Jesus leaps off the page in such compelling reality. We find his character so striking as he welcomes outsiders or weeps in the garden or eats breakfast with his friends. When the Spirit is at work, we marvel at how the whole Bible comes together in one powerful message. That gospel calls out to us and the deepest longings of our soul cry back, yes, this is right. This is what I was made for. If you want to be convinced about the message of the Bible, read the Bible. If you have a friend who's thinking about um, the reality of God, encourage them to read the Bible. Other stuff is useful, yes, but, but it's the Bible in the end. As the ultimate authority, its own claims about itself are what will convince us in the end. It's not just a holy text. All its words are the words of God. That is, that is why it is the ultimate authority. Uh, now we'll move on to my sentence, which um, I've kind of messed up on the screen. Um, time for our second point. This takes us back to 2 Kings 22. The words of the Bible are God's words. So rejecting any part of the Bible is to reject God. I'll recap the story from earlier because we've heard quite a lot of content between then and now. In the land of Judah, there was a young king named Josiah. He was eight years old when he was crowned, but unlike the kings before him, he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He wanted to restore the temple which had fallen in dis disrepair and had become a place for idol worship and false gods. One day, while the workers were cleaning out the temple, they discovered a dusty old scroll. It was the book of the law, which had been lost for many years. They brought the book to Josiah and read it aloud to him. And when he heard the words of the book, he tore his clothes in sorrow because he realized how far the people of Judah had strayed from God's commands. He said in verse 13, Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. 
Can you imagine if King Charles had reacted this way yesterday when he received the Bible? Ripping all those magnificent robes in sorrow and repentance. People around the world would have been stunned. This is a king. How can he humiliate himself like that? But that's exactly what Josiah did when he received the Bible. After tearing his robes, Josiah was determined to hear from the Lord about what was written in this book. So he sent for the prophetess, Huldah. She confirmed his worst fears in verse 16. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on this place and its people, according to everything written in the book the king of, Josiah, uh, the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods. By neglecting this book, they had forsaken God. Though there was also comfort for the king in his fears. Verse 19, because your heart was responsive and you have humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, and because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I also have heard you. The Lord showed mercy and peace towards Josiah throughout his life. And if you were to cast your eye over chapter 23, or maybe read it when you go home later today, you'll see how he completely reformed the whole country, renewing the covenant, restoring the worship of God, removing all traces of idolatry. And at the end of that chapter, in verse 25, there is a really beautiful eulogy for Josiah. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law, all with the law of Moses. Again, notice the prominence of God's word in this. Josiah turned to the Lord in accordance with all that was written. Just as the people forsook God by neglecting Scripture, so they turned to God by returning to Scripture. And that's the main takeaway for us from this story. Rejecting the Bible means rejecting God. Returning to the Bible means returning to God. How can we return to the Bible? Its authority lays claim to our heads, our hands, and our hearts. In our heads, we return to the Bible by believing. There's a growing stream of thought that emphasizes the human writers and downplays the divine writer of Scripture. By focusing on the human writers, some people feel comfortable saying that certain bits were written in error. So they say, we don't have to believe every part of the Bible. We can choose to disbelieve the bits that we don't like, miracles, the resurrection, or countercultural ethics. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that we need to believe everything in an overly literal sense in passages where God doesn't intend us to. Um, so Jesus sometimes used made-up stories, parables, to make a point. Proverbs is full of sayings that are true generally, but not in every individual case. Historical books contain rough, rough estimates 
of numbers, and lots of genuine Christians have different valid opinions about the creation story. Instead, this is what I am saying, we should remember that the Bible is always true in the way it intends to be true. Since all the words of the Bible are God's words, we should believe everything the Bible claims to be true. We return to the Bible by believing. And if and I know some of you find that difficult. Um, remember what I said early, earlier. Reading the Bible is what will convince you when you're having doubts. It is its own best witness. And pray that the Holy Spirit will help you see. It, with our heads, we return to the Bible through belief. With our hands, we return to the Bible through obedience. One really excellent tactic for keeping God at arm's length is to say, yes, I believe that, but never let it affect your life. Being a Christian is not ever a merely intellectual exercise. It is your actions that show what you really believe. It's not enough just to agree that Jesus died on the cross to take away the penalty for sin. It's not enough just to pray the sinner's prayer and then go about your life as if nothing has changed. Being a Christian means bowing to Jesus as your saviour and Lord. It means repenting and failing and repenting again every day. We return to the Bible through obeying what it says. And with our hearts, we return to the Bible through love. It is so easy to think of the Bible as just a theological textbook full of things to believe. It's so easy to think of the Bible just as a book of rules, things to obey. And of course, there are doctrines and laws in the Bible, but that is not its fundamental, fundamental nature. Before anything else, this book is a love story. God's main intention is not to win your agreement or your obedience. He's after your heart. This is a tale of a honeymoon period followed by betrayal and failed reconciliation. This is a story of promised hope and terrible sacrifice. It's a drama of rags to riches. The great worth of the Bible is not simply because it is right or because it works, this book is the most valuable thing this world affords because it is glorious. Every page contributes to a gospel message throughout that shines. From page one, the main storyline and the background harmonies all lead to the same place and the same person. Even in 2 Kings chapter 22, we have hints of an even greater king whose reforms will completely avert all disaster. It's all pointing towards Jesus. And so returning to the Bible cannot be explained merely in terms of belief and obedience. Let us pray that we would each return to the Bible by falling more deeply in love with the Savior whom it proclaims. As we return to the Bible, we return to God. The authority of the Bible is such that even kings bow. 
and we certainly should too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that you have spoken. Thank you that we have your words, not just human beings' best guess about what is true, but what you have said. We pray for the new King Charles, that you would fill him with your spirits, that you would help him to bow in submission to what you have revealed in your word. We pray that under his reign, there would be a rediscovery of the Bible in this country. And we pray the same for ourselves. We, we recognize ourselves so clearly in that play uh, that Barbara and Quinn did earlier. It's so easy for us to put on our crowns and want to be the king of our own life. Please help us to take off that crown and put it at the feet of Jesus. Please help us to believe and obey and love everything about our Savior that you have revealed in this book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.